We are continuing our summer series through the Sermon on the Mount, which I am thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying just digging into this. It has um, been really, really fun. So we're in Matthew chapter 5 today, um, and we're going to take our text from verse 21 all the way to, well, not very huge text, to 26, 21 to 26. Um, one thing that we have to keep in mind when reading uh, these three chapters, chapter 5, 6, 7, that make up the Sermon on the Mount, is that all these chapters make up one sermon that Jesus preached on the hillside. And we can have the tendency, if we're not too careful, or if we're not careful, we can have the tendency to focus so much on the chunks and the good, so many chunks within this sermon that we lose sight of the main picture, the main idea that Jesus is trying to paint for us. And so just to kind of keep... Um, in mind and keep in view the main idea that Jesus is giving in the sermon, which is essentially this. He's showing us what the life of a follower of Jesus looks like, what the life and the natural outflow is of somebody that has had their life transformed and they're part of the citizen or they have the citizenship as a part of God's kingdom. And that's kind of what really he unpacks throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. And that's why we've called the series that we're going through the Follower Series, because we're getting to see from the mouth of Jesus what the life of a follower of Jesus really looks like, what the outflow of that life, um, how it takes place. So, anyways, all that's to say, I just want to do a quick review um, for the, over the past few weeks of just kind of the main ideas that Jesus has already brought us aware to. Because he started the sermon with the Beatitudes, remember? And he talked about the blesseds, and right away he kind of hit his sermon with a power punch because he completely turned upside down the prevailing thought of the day of who really the blessed were and what it really looks like and who can be a part of God's kingdom. If you remember, Jesus um, said, blessed are you, the persecuted. Yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst. And the prevailing thought of the day is if you were blessed by God and God's favor was on you and you were part of God's kingdom, then you were wealthy and successful. And Jesus turned that completely upside down and said the kingdom of God belongs to all of you poor, broken people. And you're actually blessed. And Jesus redefined what it means to be blessed, because being blessed is not just being rich and having all sorts of favor and success. Being blessed is when God is with you and for you, and Jesus is simply saying to all these poor, broken people who thought they were not blessed by God, God is with you and for you. And then he swung wide open the gates to the kingdom of God to them. Such a cool way to start. Then Jesus goes into some really cool identity stuff. He defines for them the identity of of the people that come into his kingdom. The identity of those who go through those gates that he swung wide open and have a citizenship of God's kingdom. He said to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Just helping them to understand the identity that they now inherit as part of God's family. And so two weeks ago, we talked about how we as a church and how we as God's people can live out the identity that we already have in him as salt and light. Then Jesus goes on and talks about the law, which Steve unpacked a whole bunch of that for us last week, just the significance and the value that the law has for us today. Um, And then he said some really interesting things, some extraordinary things. Jesus said that he came not to abolish the law, and this is the text that um, 
we spoke of last week, which we actually need to kind of get a good idea of because we're going to, it's, it really plays into how we look at the text this week. He said he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. But if you think about that statement, they must have been scratching their heads because if you compare the life of Jesus and how he lived to all of the different ordinances and mandates of the law, it just doesn't make sense. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. They must have assumed that Jesus came to abolish the law because everything that Jesus did didn't quite line up with what the law said. What in the world is going on? He came to fulfill the law? That doesn't make sense because if you look at his life, he would walk around with all of his friends on the Sabbath day, his disciples, and he'd go into a, you know, a vineyard or he'd go into a grain field and he would pick grain, make a nice lunch for all of his friends and have lunch together, which was breaking the law because then he'd be harvesting on the Sabbath, which was unlawful to do, right? Regularly, Jesus would go around the towns and villages and what would he do? He'd call all the sick people. Well, he didn't even have to call them. They would just follow him. And all the poor people and all the blind and lame people, and he would heal them on the Sabbath day, which was totally against the law. I mean, Jesus associated with, made friends with, wined and dined with so many of the people that the law would render unclean and and shouldn't be associated with. And these were his friends. These were the people that he did life with. And so Jesus is saying that he came to fulfill the law. Surely he came to abolish it because he's not obeying it. But we know now that Jesus did obey the law. He had to obey the law. He obeyed it perfectly because if he hadn't have obeyed the law, then he couldn't have been the perfect sacrifice for our sins, right? If Jesus didn't obey the law, then he wouldn't be able to be the propitiation for our sins. If he didn't obey the law, then death would have held him down. But it didn't. And he rose again from the grave so that now the scripture can say, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that we can be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus obeyed the law fully. So then, again, still giving a review on last week's message and last week's text, Jesus then says something crazy. He says, and you, as citizens of my kingdom, You, as one of my people, need to obey the law too. And if you don't obey the law, and if you don't teach others to obey the law, then you won't be considered great in the kingdom. And then he even takes it further, and he says, oh, and also, you guys who are my citizens in my kingdom, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, You can't even enter into the kingdom. Okay, I don't like where this is going. That's crazy. Jesus is doing something wild here. I think one of two things is happening. Either Jesus is setting the bar so incredibly high that even the dedicated, faithful, anal retentive Pharisees and scribes couldn't even come close to reaching its standards... And Jesus is telling us that we have to even exceed that if we want to come into the kingdom of God. He's either doing that because, I mean, read the text, or or he's doing something else. Jesus is essentially correcting their view of really what the law is all about. They actually had a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of what the whole purpose of the law is, and Jesus is correcting that. 
And I would argue, and I would argue passionately, that it's the second of the two. Jesus isn't raising the standard so high that nobody could attain to it, saying that our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. No, Jesus is simply saying that it's not so much that we have to do what the Pharisees and scribes did, but even do more if we want to come into the kingdom of God. We have to take a different approach. We haven't been looking at the law the right way, and so the rest of this sermon, Jesus really brings us back to a right understanding of the law, that it's not all about rules and regulations and mandates and external behavior that we have to exhibit to be right in God's kingdom. And that's how they were viewing it. This is so powerfully profound. This is awesome. And so, anyways, they were obviously looking at the law like we tend to look at the law as a bunch of rules and regulations. And I don't think that's the right way. Here's what they were doing. Let me give you an example. It would have been equivalent to this. It would be equivalent to me saying that, um, well, let's say I'm an apple tree, okay? And you have to use your imagination here because I'm not an apple tree and I haven't gone crazy. But let's say I'm an apple tree, but I really want to be a peach tree and I really want to grow peaches. And so what do I do? I go to the marketplace, and I buy a whole bunch of peaches, and I bring them back, and I, tie, and I get rid of all my apples, and I tie all my peaches on my branches. And then I say, I'm a peach tree. It doesn't work. I can't be. I'm going to end up growing apples because that's who I am. That's what comes out of me. I'm, I can't be a peach tree because I'm an apple tree. And that's essentially what they were doing, is they were saying, we're going to conduct our lives this way, this way. It's like tying peaches on our branches. And we're going to do this because the way that they perceived the law was if we exhibit this kind of behavior, then we will be the kind of people that God wants us to be. And that's how they interpreted the law. And the more I obey the law, the better of a person I will become, and the more proud God will be of me, and the more I will line up to who he wants me to be. And their intentions were really, really good, they were just off. And I'm really excited about kind of unpacking this a little bit because Jesus actually completely turns around how we should view the law. And it's not so much outward expression, it's not so much outward appearance, it's not so much rules and regulations that we have to follow, but it has so much more to do with what's inside of us, right? It has so much more to do with who we are. And I think that's why Jesus used these great examples. Jesus, Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, you guys are like this guy washing a cup. And you wash the outside of the cup so well, but you don't even look on the inside. And the inside of the cup is dirty and rotten, and it's filthy. If you just look at the inside of the cup then the, and clean that, then the outside will come clean as a result. And then he used the example of a tree. He said, a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit, and you will be known by your fruit. Jesus is basically kind of bringing them to the understanding that it's not about external behavior, but it's about what's going on inside of you. And the law actually points to that. What the law is really there for is simply to bring us to an awareness of who God is and what kind of people 
we're supposed to be in light of who he is. That's what the law is all about. The law is really good. And I know Steve talked a ton about the significance and the value of the law last week, but it's simply to point us to Jesus. It's to point us to the character and the nature and the goodness of God. The mandates are kind of just training wheels to get us there, to get get us to an awareness of who he is. That's simply what it's for. In fact, we know that because this is what Jesus said when he was challenged by the experts of the law of that day. They asked him, point blank, in public, they said, Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? And then Jesus gives us a really good understanding of what the law is for. It's not about mandates. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are this. All of the law and all the prophets hang on these two things. Love God and love each other. That's what the law is for. That's what the law is supposed to teach you. Just to love God and love each other. And that's the significance of the law. And it's not about mandates and it's not about rules. And and the rules are just to get us there. That's it. I liken it to the rules that I have at my house. Because we have rules at my house because I have four kids that are wily. And we need rules to give them some structure to line them up to the people that they're supposed to be, right? And so one rule in particular that I've been working on so, so hard is that when my kids fight and one of them does something to hurt the other one, they have to reconcile. They have to make it right with their brother or sister that they hurt. And so we have certain rules that they have to follow to make it right. And what they have to do is they have to approach you know, this sibling, and, and they have to confess what they did. They have to say, I did this. And then after they confess what they did, they have to um, identify how it hurt the other person. And so if, let's say, Crosby hits Lucy, um, which no guy should hit a girl in the first place, and I've told them that, but um, they're brother and sister, and it happens. Um, and so I, he has to say, you know what? I hit you, and... It hurt you, and it hurt you in the arm, and that was an unuseful uh, or, un, um, I guess, necessary use of my force. And then after they identify how it hurt the other person, then they can finally say, I'm sorry. I don't let them say, I'm sorry, first. Can that, that can just be a tool to manipulate their way out of the whole conversation. So they have to confess. They have to identify, because in identifying how it hurt the other person, then hopefully they'll start to gain some empathy towards them, right? And then they can say, I'm sorry and I won't do it again. Those are rules. And those rules are there so that they can start loving each other better. That's it. So they can empathize with each other. It's not following the rules that's so important. It's getting to the heart of loving your brother and sister that's so important. But here's what they do. And this is what the Pharisees did too. We have such an amazing way of obeying the rules and skirting around the intended purpose for the rules. The rules are there so you can love each other. And so, he unpacks the topic of anger. And he tells us where murder starts. It starts inside, in our feelings. What anger really is, is basically when somebody opposes our will, it's that feeling that kind of comes up, right? Anger is in every single one of us. Whoever opposes my will and does something that I don't want them to do or I don't want to have happen to me, I get angry. 
And what we do with that anger makes the biggest difference in the world. We can embrace it and indulge it, and then it leads to all sorts of damaging sins and behaviors, and they don't always have to be violent. They can be very cunning and very refined and very destructive, but it all is a result of the anger that is within us, and that is what Jesus is teaching them and showing us to deal with. And so then he unpacks this anger a little bit. And he actually kind of describes three different versions of how anger festers inside of us. And this is, this is all happening within kind of the legalistic heart. And one of the ways that anger obviously portrays itself is through violence. And we learn that through the, the law. That's why the law said you should not kill. But then Jesus takes it so much deeper and he talks about contempt. And that's when he uses the phrase raka as an example of somebody holding somebody else in contempt because raka was just saying that somebody was like an idiot. What, what happens when we hold people in contempt because of our anger is we make them feel less valuable and less worthy than they really are. That's holding somebody in contempt. That's treating somebody with contempt. And so they would say raka when they wanted to really treat somebody with contempt. They would make somebody feel less valuable than they actually are. This is the way that um, one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, says it. He says this. The Aramaic term raka was current in Jesus' day to express contempt for someone and to mark out him or her as contemptible. In anger, I want to hurt you. In contempt, I don't care whether you are hurt or not, or at least I say so. When we can be angry at somebody without denying their worth, or uh, we can be angry at somebody without denying their worth, but contempt makes it easier for us to hurt them or see them further degraded. Today, of course, we would say raka. We wouldn't say raka, but we might call somebody a a twit or a twerp or a dork or a nerd. These are the gentler words in our vocabulary of contempt. But the intent and the effect of contempt is always to exclude somebody, push them away, leave them out, and isolated. And this explains why filth is so constantly evoked in expressing contempt and why contempt is so cruel, so serious, Get this, it breaks the social bond more severely than anger, yet it may also be done with such refinement. We can be obeying the law of not murdering people and still hating each other vehemently and not doing what the law was supposed to teach us to do, and that's love each other. I've seen contempt carried out in so many different ways that are so incredibly damaging but not violent. Like when I was in high school, there was this very popular, very pretty young gal in one of my classes. And I think, she, I mean, she, she was very good with her words, very cunning, but also very cruel. And I think she was pretty racist, too, because there was this little Hispanic kid in our class named Angel. And she constantly degraded that kid. And she made this poor Hispanic kid who, you know, his parents were orchard workers and he had nothing. She made him feel so low and so unworthy and so dejected that one day he came to school and he pulled out a gun and he pointed it to her head and he said if she ever talks to him, loaded gun, pistol, in high school. This is in the 90s before all the crazy shooting too. Um, Well, most of it anyways. And he said, if you ever talk to me again, I'm going to kill you. Talk. And thankfully, the gun was confiscated. He was taken down. And he was dealt with appropriately. 
And obviously, he had serious ramifications after that. He was incarcerated. He was expelled from school. All of that. And here's what bothers me, though, is that gal that provoked it, nothing happened to her. She was treated like nothing more than a victim of a totally unjust circumstance. And that just drives me crazy. Not to say that he wasn't guilty because he was guilty. But what I am saying is she was guilty too. She was guilty of contempt. And contempt can kill people. We can kill people with our words. And that is not how we are to interact with each other. And that's the stuff that breaks God's heart. My heart gets broken when my kids argue. How do you think God's heart feels when we're killing each other? I mean, for crying out loud, the law was given to us to help us be the people that God wants us to be. That's it. And then he even goes further into contempt and talks about verbal desecration. That's the whole kind of phrase that he uses as an example when he says, you, if anybody says you fool to one another, and I don't even know how to compare You fool back then to today's standards because it was the worst thing that you could ever say to anybody in that honor-shame society. If I were to use something comparable, I'd probably scandalize you because this is like an appropriate setting to say what you fool would be likened to, and so I shouldn't go there. But it was the meanest thing to say. But then, remember, this is a compare-contrast here. Now Jesus compares this to a loving kingdom heart where the life of God naturally flows out, and he gives us some really cool examples. He goes on to say this. Check it out. Verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift there in front of the altar. First go and reconcile to them, and then come offer your gift. Settle matters quickly, he says, with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And so now, what Jesus is doing is he's basically, and keep in mind that it's not so much that he's saying, this is how you appropriate yourself in religious ceremonies. He's not saying, this is all of the ordinances and the rules that you need to have in pertaining to somebody taking you to court. You can't go to court as a follower of Jesus. You have to reconcile with your brother before you can do any religious. No, that's not where he's going. Where he's going is the intent of the law, and that is this. You need to care more about the people that you're associating with and that you're with than any of the projects or any of the programs or any of the rules or the regulations that you're supposed to follow and that are on you even when you're at one of the most highly regarded and most sacred moments in the church in a religious ceremony, the brother that you are unreconciled with is more important than that because people are more important than the program. That's what Jesus is saying. And the program is just the law, is just to get you to love the people. And so this is how a kingdom, the kingdom heart, Somebody who's been transformed by the kingdom, who's actually growing peaches out of their tree, so to speak, will go reconcile with their brother because they're so burdened by being unreconciled that it doesn't matter what they're doing in the religious ceremony, they'll go do that. Isn't that awesome? I think so. 
And then he says, when your enemy wants to take you to court, guess what? Care more about your enemy and inviting them in to a process of reconciliation and maybe even saving them from having to rely on the world's system of doing it and, and showing them how God operates and care more about that than winning in court. It's all about the people. It's as simple as that. So that's kind of what Jesus is unpacking here. And so we get to look at the next like several topics, all sorts of amazing topics, and look at it through a life-transformed kingdom heart that loves God and loves one another. And that's what this series is all about. What does a follower of Jesus really look like? What's the outflow of their heart? And that is what I want. I don't want to just do the right thing because it's the right thing. I want to be the right person because God can make me the right person from the inside out. So the question that I ask is how? How do we avoid, I mean, our tendency is always to look at it through legalism. I don't know why that's our tendency. Maybe it's because we have to earn everything in our culture all the time, and nothing's free, they say, but our tendency is always to look at the legalistic, like take, take for instance, for instance, Jesus' example of not taking somebody to the court and reconciling with our brother. Our automatic response, at least maybe I'm just worse off than you guys are, because my automatic response is, well, what if I don't reconcile with my brother? and Can I never go to a religious ceremony again? I get so concerned about the do's and don'ts of it. Well, what if I go to court if I sinned and is God mad at me? No, just care more about the person. That's what he's saying. Just be a person that loves God and loves each other. And I don't even think we get that very well. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So good. So how do we become that person? I only have one answer. So the sermon's over now. So you guys, we can eat and enjoy each other and stop listening to me gap. But the, 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 the one answer I have is we simply, it's the only way that I know how to be the person that God wants me to be from the inside out is we simply abide in the vine. It's as simple as that. If we, because Jesus has given us an opportunity to abide in him, to be grafted into his life-giving life so that we can actually bear the fruit that he wants us to bear, right? He said in John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. You won't have to tie it on your branches through external behavior and manipulation so you look like a follower of me, but inside you're rotten. No. Just abide in me. That's what he said. For without me, he goes on to say, you can do nothing. So the only, so you actually have all the answers to the question. The answer is abide in him, but how do we abide in him? And that's what you need to figure out. That's what I need to figure out. What ways can I abide in Jesus so that I can take his life in me? What are some of the ways? Is it going on a walk in the morning and just talking to him? Is it going fly fishing? Ah, it is for me. (laughs) What is it? How can you abide in him? Slow down, put life on pause for those rare and absolutely needed moments where we actually take in some of his life so that we can bear fruit and be the people that we're supposed to be from the inside out and actually love God and love others. Mm. So let me pray that.